divine part of Melchizedek. To which the response must be, if there is something divine about Melchizedek, it must be Jesus. I would also say that there is anything eternal and divine about believers. Again, it must be Jesus, the Christ. No one ever comes up and, to my knowledge, has ever said, man, that guy reminds me of Melchizedek. Why? Because he's not the greatest. The Bible doesn't even, I believe, make a case for Melchizedek being close to the greatness of Christ, for that would distract us from the fullness of Christ and his deity and his humanity. But I believe if we look into the Greek translation, and if many of you should at home have a lexicon and be uh, privy to looking these words up, we'll find that they don't exactly mean what our mind may first draw us to believe. When it says without father, it doesn't necessarily mean that this man just came into being as we would like to think. We must first consider the context of the verse. The epistle to the Hebrews thus far has been dedicated to fixing our eyes upon an eternal Savior, right? We understand that that is the purpose of every text of Scripture, to focus our minds upon the Christ whom we have not yet seen in fullness, the Christ whom we are encouraged and commanded to believe in the christ that we don't believe in enough and that's the problem that is why god is currently through the holy spirit sanctifying men so that he he may see and that he may believe in this jesus the christ so the text is uh fixing or causing us if the spirit is testifying of these truths to fix our gaze upon christ an eternal christ a jesus who is the name uh, that is the name of the man and Christ, who is the name of his eternal position as Savior. And not just any Jesus, because we know that the Bible declares that there are many quote-unquote Jesuses. There are false Jesuses. There are wannabe Jesuses. There are, like John used to say, Jesus the gardener. You know, the same name, but not the same person. We recognize that the context of any text of Scripture must be centered around this Jesus who is and was and is to come. Unfortunately for many, uh, their view of Jesus, and even maybe some here may not quite be a biblical view of Jesus. We're able as well to be reminded that this is not a mere sinful man's view or perspective of Jesus from the Hebrews. This is not a man telling us how jesus is this is not even your pastor telling you how jesus is this is not your neighbor or some godly quote-unquote man that you've known your whole life telling you of who jesus is this is the direct word of god declaring who his son is this jesus the christ this is not sinful man but this is perfect holy god sender of the messiah describing for us through this epistle who Jesus really is, not just a mortal Jesus, but an eternal Savior Jesus. The Holy Spirit is indeed he who has revealed these truths to us from Scripture. That is the purpose. That is what we have seen throughout the text uh, of the New Testament as Jesus has ascended into heaven, that he is sending a helper, a comforter, one who will reveal the truth that has yet to be seen. 
And that is what is indeed happening with these texts. Thus, we call it the written word of God, not the written word of man or not uh, the Bible according to anyone other than God himself. This is how we must view the scripture if we are to see Christ in it. Simply that this is not a declaration from man. It is instead a herald of the message that man has already received as Hebrews described it in the first chapters, a message that was given in visions and dreams and diverse manners, as it is called in the King James, but many portions, many ways in the English translations. It has been spoken of by prophets and angels, and now it is spoken through this man, Jesus, who is also God the Christ. This is the written word of God. As the epistle has progressed now from chapter 1 to chapter 7, we see that there has been a light that is shown upon the person of Christ that is brighter than what we have seen in times past. Indeed, that is what the Holy Spirit is guaranteed to do, is to reveal and to unveil that which is hidden. And we see this throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. Many pages have now uh, caused us to see and to be dedicated to an intimate knowledge of his priesthood. And we've seen that uh, even from chapter 5 to chapter 7, an intense message and description of the priesthood of Christ. Why is that important? And I would say and declare to you that the priesthood of Christ is so important, is most important, uh, not to be compared in any way that if every instance of Melchizedek would have been stricken from the pages of your Bible, that Christ would remain the greatest priest still. It takes away and adds nothing to the priesthood of Christ. It only serves as an example and as further proof that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, that's what all Scripture does. Without even a single word of Scripture, would Jesus Christ still be King of kings and Lord of lords? And the answer is yes. I think that... There is a wonderful example and there's uh, tons of spiritual knowledge to be had with an appropriate understanding of who Melchizedek is. But I also say that if you never understood, Christ would still be king. Christ would still be Lord. He would still be Savior. It would be nothing, nothing more and nothing less. But indeed, in one sense, he is all that we have. Pages of the text have declared that the priesthood and its, uh, and its serving man and serving God is both evident in the scriptures as well as preeminent even in this passage that Jesus being the greatest, highest priest, that is the message. We must see this as the inevitable goal of any preacher, of any professor of Christ, any believer any disciple, any Sunday school teacher, any youth minister, any Christian from Genesis to Revelation to preach Christ crucified. Plain and simple. Undoubtedly, it can sometimes prove a vigorous task to do this, but as I look at the pages and consider the text this week, I find and I pray that the whole church may as one body united together that we all find a simpler a more simplistic 
and more meaningful view and consideration of Jesus and Melchizedek. Melchizedek is not truly the subject of today, though you may hear his name. You may hear about him, and I may say his name uh, a thousand times, but he is not the subject of today. It is Jesus the Christ. If you are here because you want to know who Melchizedek is, then it stands that you may not know who Christ is. Because he should be the desire of your heart. He should be the desire of every breath, of every thought, of every action, and every reaction. Unfortunately, that is what is hard about being a Christian. What is hard about being a man bound in flesh. Today we look for Jesus, and as some consider this particular passage a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus... As a possibility, our minds must be given to this single thought that we are here to see with spiritual eyes and to hear with spiritual ears about this man, Jesus, who is as well God. Nothing that we may behold is ever greater than the spiritual sight of Jesus who has been born of Mary, suffered of men, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected and ascended and reigning as hebrews declares even should one stretch the evidence this morning from chapter 7 about melchizedek to support this melchizedekian view of a pre-incarnate christ he will never for us be the lamb slain for the church in fact jesus is he who is much sweeter than melchizedek for he is that lamb slain he is the bread of life he is the living water he is the true vine the good shepherd the i am things that are never mentioned or insinuated on behalf of melchizedek so with the perspective of christ's priesthood we search out these first words from verse three without father there's not a single other occurrence in the entire canon of scripture for what you see here without father and even as well for the words without mother. It occurs nowhere else. You will not find it. In fact, your search will be rather short. Its rendering actually would be fatherless or more in-depthly detailed as without a record of father, without a record of mother, without father being known. Why is that, we must ask? Why is it that we don't know Paul's thorn in the flesh? Why is it that we don't know many things, many of the uh, what some consider great mysteries of the Bible that I would say the more mature Christian does not wonder on as much? It is because these things are not nearly as important as what is being detailed in Scripture. Without father without mother, without record of these things. There is no detail of them. There is no description. In fact, the description that we have is that indeed these things are not important. Why? Because if they were inherently important, I believe that God would have revealed them to us. But what would Melchizedek's father do for you? What would Melchizedek's mother do for you? For was it his mother that bore a child that went to the cross and i would declare no 
what good is Mary in one instance? And in fact, we love as, as uh, Protestant believers to declare the fallacy of the Roman Catholic Church for their Hail Marys and their speech about this uh, supposed wonderful woman Mary who did nothing for their salvation. Neither could Melchizedek's father or Melchizedek's mother, should they even be listed. I would say that in some ways it is difficult, if not impossible, to accurately count the person of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek as mutually exclusive. This is not uh, fatherless and motherless being spoken merely of a man, but I believe it is being spoken of his priesthood. That being said, I don't believe we can safely uh, separate those two. I don't believe that the priesthood is exactly separate from his person, from his lineage, if you will. Or to say that his priesthood and his person can be totally separated, I would say that we have erred in our thought and our logic. For this is not searching the scripture and this is not a Christocentric view to want to detail a man who has not provided the precious blood that has redeemed mankind. Rather, in the priesthood and the lineage, I think it must be considered uh, in conjunction with this appointment to such an office as priest. Uh, what is important about this is not the lineage from which Melchizedek comes or from the father or the mother, but what is important is about the office that he represents. He represents an office of priest, something that uh, we have heard much about, something that is uh, quite intricate. If you ask me, a, a priest had some responsibilities that I would dare not one to have because I would be scared I would be stricken dead. I would mess something up because that is what I do, and I'm uh, honest enough to admit that. I believe if we look at Melchizedek, we shouldn't separate his person, and his priesthood. But we may see uh, those uh, makeups of both sides of his person. We may quickly understand that the understanding that no mention is made is because his priesthood was not inherited of man. I think that's the appropriate information that we take away, that having without father, having without mother, this man Melchizedek was not about him being divinely born into the world, but that the office in which he is described serving as king and priest was one that did not come because he was born into the proper family. It did not come because uh, he was somehow of a, a rich family or a noble family or uh, of a Levitical priesthood of Aaron somehow. This is not what is being described here. In fact, it is describing the opposite, that no longer does the man make the priest, but the priest is making the man, so to speak. doesn't rely upon anything other than the will of God. It can't be traced here to a birthright. That is the inference of the text, being without father and without mother. It wasn't because he was from a particular line, either being on the uh, patriarchal side or the matriarchal side. There's no reason for Melchizedek to be a priest in one sense. Sort of like when we think of Jesus the Christ, no form or comeliness that any man should desire him. He was 
uh, a man who is serving as priest, as we are described here, uh, as it is described for us here, and he is one who has no distinct predecessor nor a successor after him. That is what is important because as we see a proper view of Christ, we realize even Melchizedek is no predecessor to Christ. He, he can't be compared. And if he can be compared to your Christ in a true form in which he may blur the line between man and God, then I don't think our view of Christ is as high as it ought to be. I think, in fact, the text preserves uh, the truth of Christ and the eternality of Christ, the superiority of Christ, and the office of priest by which he still today is holding and working. It's important that we know, uh, such as with a Levitical priesthood, that care has been taken to preserve its integrity in Scripture. We see many books of the Bible which we don't take much pleasure in reading because it's about lineage. Over and over, names begatten names. We wonder why that's important because it's describing a priesthood. And here, not so much care seems to be taken. In fact, it, care seems to be uh, thrown to the wind, it may seem. But caution indeed has been taken not to give our minds over to the lineage of Melchizedek, but to see how he is foreshadowing Christ. Press on to say that the physical side, we must again remain vigilant to understand that without father does not imply immaculate conception, but instead unknown father and in the same way without a mother and unknown mother. Not never having one, never being born. In fact, in some degree, that is what the Christ must be, right? He must be born. That is what uh, the Old Testament believers and true godly men were looking for, one to be born. That is why kings wanted to destroy baby boys because one was to be born. This is why a wise man knew where to find Jesus, but those who would seek to kill him as an infant could not because they were looking for one to be born. Continue to say that Melchizedek is probably not a Christophany. Melchizedek is a man to make us look to Christ as John was a man to make us look to Christ. Paul was a man to make us look to Christ as any preacher or any fellow Christian or brother should be causing us to look at Christ. An application unfitting this uh, understanding that some may have about immaculate conception if we consider that Jesus himself was born of Mary. And then, on the other hand, declare that Melchizedek was not born. There's a fallacy there. We would then have, if we came to that conclusion, a Melchizedek, uh, a spiritual Melchizedek foreshadowing a physical Christ. We have a, a man who somehow, for lack of a, a better illustration, appeared from nowhere and is representing a physical Christ rather than the model that we see from the rest of biblical text, that a physical man is representing a true 
physical and spiritual Christ. It would be something that the Bible has not really borne out for us before if we see it any other way. We should see instead a physical Melchizedek representing a spiritual, eternal Christ. So often we see this physical, frail man representing what is spiritually and eternally strong and pure, and that would be Jesus the Christ. We would be wiser instead to see Melchizedek as inferior to Christ because what we do know is Christ is supreme, right? If Christ is supreme, then we should automatically determine our view of Melchizedek or any other man mentioned in the Bible. In fact, this is the fallacy of what is sometimes called Christian logic. We don't begin with the proper uh, presumptions. We don't begin with the proper worldview. We don't begin with the proper view of the text and Scripture and God and Jesus the Christ. For if we begin with Christ and look back, we may have the truth. If we begin any other place, we will have deceit and lies. Christ defines Melchizedek. And as we read the text, we will see that because it says he is made like the Son. Christ defines what is righteous as this righteous king. Christ defines what is peaceful as this king of peace. Christ defines the priesthood because he is supreme. And now the words to follow as we look at verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now they're properly recognized because of the priesthood and because of the person uh, of Melchizedek and because they are defined in Christ. These words are properly recognized not as possibly divine like Jesus Christ, but without record. It says without father, without mother, without genealogy. It means without genealogical record or left from the record to show us the infinite greatness of a priesthood that will be only secure in Christ. Priesthood of righteous men rather than sinful men. Agreed, we know that Levitical priests were sinful men. Here the idea is to see that Christ, not being sinful, endures his own priesthood forever that is like with Melchizedek in the order of Melchizedek, perpetual, sinless, so to speak. We know that this does not uh, detail a Melchizedek who had to be perfect because we see other men in the Bible called righteous, one who we know sinned, right? Abraham called righteous. He sinned. If we have an issue with that, then we have an issue with our perspective of Christ. I believe we may safely know that Melchizedek had a father and a mother from the original text, but not a genealogy that is offered of these which would place him in the office of priest. That is the, the gathering of the information that we have here, that he had parents, but they were of no genealogy that would place him into this office in which he serves. He was not uh, defined as a royal man in any sense that he should be king. There was nothing special about him. And that all the more details for us 
who Christ is as a person. That he came unto his own, his own received him not. That these men did not desire him, they did not recognize him. Listen, there were faults on behalf of Jesus' own family to recognize who he really was. And we see those things at the point of Christ's resurrection, at the point of his appearing, point of his going to the cross, and now those after him having to repent, now seeing that Christ was indeed perfect. Actually, was able to have a conversation with Nathan this week about that. Can you imagine? Here is Jesus the Christ, and he's your half brother, and somehow he has lived a sinless, perfect life, and you, growing up right beside him, never understood that this man is perfect. Your brother is perfect. I would say to you that even Melchizedek would say, Jesus the Christ is perfect. Things that we do not have, only he may offer. Actually, the image here is more so of a man seeing the promise made not by blood, but strictly by the will of God, that his priesthood wasn't by his genealogy or his blood, but only by the will of God, by which we must even declare even those who would be Levitical priests were only by the will of God. It was only by the will of God that you could be born in that family. He is he who opens and closes the womb, who gives this new life. But what we see with Melchizedek is no other reasonable explanation, no chance to boast in what we have. I believe it's a miracle to see the priesthood because it stands to reason that as men, if we would have been born uh, into a family of priests, that we may boast about our lineage, we may boast about our heritage and our responsibility to the people of God as priests, but Melchizedek could only boast in he who would come after because his priesthood did not depend on blood. As John would say, the will of man, the will of the flesh, but it depended fully upon God to which there was no other reasonable explanation. A promise made by the blood of Christ, not by the blood of man. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now this was the, the second hardest part, I believe, for people to grasp about this. Now they're seeing, because of this terminology, we want to see an eternal Melchizedek. We want to see a deity in Melchizedek. He's got no beginning or end, but that is not, again, what the text is meaning to reveal. I believe this is to be taken with the matter of genealogy because it follows right after it. The start and the end not recorded. That is the, the detail, if you will, of the original language. The beginning and the end of his kingship and his priesthood not detailed, not recorded. Why is that? We must ask the question. Because it has no bearing on his purpose. In fact, I, I feel some of the way about Melchizedek as I do about personal testimonies. I love personal testimonies. They're wonderful. They're great. Some churches set aside time in the preaching, uh, whatever their preaching hour may be on Sunday mornings for people to give testimonies to which uh, my declaration, if I must be honest with you, is that there is no testimony greater than that which is given on the cross, than that which Jesus himself has 
preached. And I say the same with this matter of Melchizedek. Why is it not there? Why is it not recorded? The beginning or the end, the mother or the father? Because it is no testimony in comparison to that which Jesus has given himself. The written word of God from Genesis to maps. The details of him coming in the flesh. His three and a half year ministry. Preaching. Listen, we don't have any indication of Melchizedek's preaching. Only Jesus the Christ truly preached God, truly preached his own blood, his own sacrifice as the Son of God for the remission of sins. Only can repentance be detailed by first seeing Jesus the Christ. Start and end is not recorded because I don't believe it bears uh, much upon the purpose that Melchizedek served. Other priest genealogies and periods of service or servitude to their kingdom or their people would serve many purposes, the greatest of which would be to shed light on the one to come. That was why we have genealogies, to remind us where they came from, from whence they came. Who would forever do what they could not, this Jesus the Christ? We could detail the lines of Melchizedek. We could detail the lines of whoever we want. But to understand what Jesus has done, that is the purpose of the text. One should be seen who would bring a sacrifice, not for himself, but only for sinners. Likewise, the genealogy and reign of Melchizedek is not held up by its beginning. It's not propped up by its end, for that is not of most importance but rather its intention is to promote an eternal view of jesus christ who has and is serving as sacrifice eternal sacrifice priest eternal priest king of kings lord of lords and also completely and infinitely like no other man i dare say that we should not think of Melchizedek to be numberless of days or virgin-born or any other of the such. For this, and in this way, many could wrongly see him as a Messiah. Don't you see how it could be confusing to have that view of Melchizedek, knowing that one would be born and he will be righteous, he will be perfect, he will be a lamb, he will be a king, they thought different kind of king they thought he would be all these wonderful things and if we think that this Melchizedek was virgin born or just appeared from nowhere do you see how destructive that could be how deceitful that may look how confusing to which I'm reminded there has never been even insinuated this much of Melchizedek and that God is not the author of confusion. Instead, I believe that we should see that no one took Melchizedek's place. No one took over for him. No one came before him and handed it to him. And no one came after him. No sons, no bloodline, no cousins, no priest after him. No one served 
except for he until his last. By which I, I, I think about even, even in the Roman Catholic Church how there's a, a, a change of hierarchy. People retire and someone else takes over. This is not the priesthood of Melchizedek or certainly Christ. No one is coming to take it over. Here we see that Christ is preeminent. It says that he is uh, not uh, with, uh, without having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. That should tell us everything we need to know. What is so important about Melchizedek? He is made like the Son of God. To which there should be many Christians this morning saying, I wish I was made like the Son of God. I wish I could be confused with the Son of God. I wish I could be righteous like Jesus the Christ. Not made from. Not just like. Not identical. But made or created in the likeness or in the image of. That sounds like redeemed man. That sounds like those who are made in the image of God but are not righteous without Christ, are not holy without Christ, are not able to enter into the kingdom of heaven without Christ. Not equal to. We are never told that Melchizedek is worshipped as Jesus was worshipped. We never see him called the son in whom I am well pleased. We never see him presented as the only begotten. We never see him represented as a substitutionary sacrifice. Never is he mentioned as the conqueror of sin or death. Never lamb, never savior, never Messiah, never anything that is important, if you will, or crucial to man's eternal life. Or where his soul may lie. But the Son of God is. I think every Christian should pray, hope to be like the Son of God, molded from sinful man into righteous child. One more thing that I would like us to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just in case we're ever caught up in this question about who Melchizedek is in reference to Christ, I want us to remember what has happened here with those at the church at Corinth. Chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos, 
watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. These people had a similar argument. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and Paul says, we must be of Christ. Who is Melchizedek if he not point us to Christ? What kind of servant king can he be? What kind of priest would he be if he did not represent for us the greatest, highest priest? This morning I would say the text of Scripture urges us to be reminded that our eternal life, our heavenly value, our righteousness does not depend on Paul or Apollos or Melchizedek, but it is seated at the right hand of God and His name is Jesus Christ. Should we be identified by a man who has but two mentions in the Bible, two or three, depending on how you look at the text, or should we be looking to Jesus who says, I am on every line and in every page, every scripture, these are they that testify of me. I think we should be quickly reminded how easy it is to fall into the things and the matters of the flesh when indeed we are to be looking to that which is spiritual and eternal. The call this morning was not to trust in Melchizedek, it was not to believe in Melchizedek guess what so what greatest priest ever lived uh, according to genealogy before Jesus what does that do for you and the answer is Christ has become of no effect to you if you believe or trust or look anywhere other than him for you cannot know the father unless you know the son likewise is true you cannot know the son unless you know the father if you have seen me you have seen him that is the reality of seeing christ not melchizedek but christ this morning we should respond to the gospel with that which we never hear from melchizedek's person though i, I don't say that he didn't i just say we have not an account uh from which he preached repentance and faith this morning i will say that even this Melchizedek would declare we must repent before a just and holy God and we must believe in the only begotten Son who is Jesus the Christ, the priest who is and was and is to come before and after during the time of this Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father God, as we uh, look to your word this morning, now we just pray that Christ may be preeminent, that Christ may be dominant. Uh, God, that he would truly be Lord over every word that we read, for it is about him. Think of so many times, Lord, that in the English language we may sit in debate about a literary work, a human being, and what they meant, what they said, and what this means, and what all of these elements together could actually represent. 
It is not so with the Bible. God, it is your word. It is your son who has become flesh. You have declared that this word is about him. Lord, we just ask that you would strike anything from our hearts and our minds. Lord, that would deceive us concerning the cross or Christ. And Lord, that you would, uh, with the brightest of heavenly light, shine upon the text so that we may see Jesus uh, nothing more, nothing less than his blood and his righteousness. In his name we pray. I ask that you would bless the time that we have together, Lord, the assembly, that you would add to her uh, spiritual growth today, Lord, and that you would even bless the food that we partake. In his name we pray once again. Amen.